Hello and welcome to Death of a Thousand Cuts, making you an awesome writer one cut at a time. My name is Tim Clare and this is a show about writing for writers, for readers and for anyone with a morbid fascination with how the story sausage is made. On this show we have three central planks to our writing manifesto. Plank one to help you write more, plank two to help you write better and plank three to help you be a little bit happier as you do those things. On today's episode um, I spoke to and will be speaking to, I suppose, from your perspective, uh, Simon Aikham, who uh, wrote a book called The Changing of the Guard. Uh, it's about the changing face of the British military from uh, sort of September the 11th until present. And I guess I'm sort of trying to think about the way into sort of... Uh, because I, I suppose you know, I'm I've read some uh, sort of uh, military history and military um, nonfiction and enjoyed it, but I wouldn't describe it, you know, intrinsically as being uh, a genre I gravitate to, to. And yet, this book is really excellent. And um, one of the things that brought it to my attention, as I'm sure was true of a, a lot of people in the UK, was the problems Simon had with his publisher who um, when we get into this in the episode but um, after there was some pushback uh, and some threats uh, from the army about how uh, they might have been portrayed in the book and requests to look over the content and have final say on it his publishers kind of caved in lots of ways sort of didn't back him up um on what he'd written and ended up saying they weren't going to publish his book and asking for the money back um because he re refused to let the uh to, to 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 let the people he'd spoken to um have you know final edit on what he said i mean he'd gone as we talk about he'd been very rigorous with his sources he'd gone back with them checked everything with them but, uh, you know, as a piece of journalism, he it was critical of the uh, British Army in, in many ways. And he didn't want to allow them to, you know, the people he was criticising to, to necessarily cut that out. Seems perfectly reasonable, right? But his publishers wouldn't back him up. And um, it, it ended up in a, and we talk about this as well. A long-running dispute. It got picked up by an independent publisher who sort of helped bought, um, buy him out of his contract and um, it's been released. And a terrific book it is too that just sits on... And I just really, really wanted to speak to Simon because having just finished a non-fiction book myself, I'm really interested in the effort that goes into them and how we speak to people, you know, how we conduct interviews... And I, I just, I'm, you know, everything he was saying, I was really pleased about because I was like, oh, this is just such good stuff to be telling uh, listeners. You know, I'm, 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 I'm glad I didn't expect for a second that he was going to go. You know, it's good to be slapdash with your stuff and don't spend too long making sure that you've got, you know, just give the gist of what someone says. He's really thorough and gives lots of practical advice on how to talk to sources, how to speak to people. And how to be upfront and honest, and I think it's it's just really cool that what produces a good book 
is also sort of built on a foundation of kind of like ethics and rigor um i'm glad that he just wasn't like oh well i'm actually just naturally talented at doing this stuff and i i lucked into it that actually there is this kind of system behind it um and he's built it up through experience so i think this is a really interesting episode if you've ever been interested in writing sort of non-fiction if you're interested in the processes that go into it and you know like i don't think ultimately although he had quite like a tortuous route to publication i don't think ultimately this is a scare story about don't write non-fiction because it can all go wrong i think actually it's a you know it's actually quite a hopeful story about kind of surviving the worst and about kind of resilience and sort of sticking up against people who are trying to maybe intimidate or bully you into not telling the truth uh or maybe not telling certain versions of the truth that they would rather you didn't or feel are uncomplimentary to them so i think it's just really really cool for that it's a really interesting story simon was you know really great to talk to and i just really enjoyed it um the book yeah it's as i say it's called the changing of the guard and i'll put a link to it in the show notes if you want to grab yourself a copy to read because yeah i've been really enjoying it um and it's and it's it's very readable but it's not easy reading if that makes sense um you know it's talking about uh, war and you know there's li- especially you know at the time of recording with what's just happened in afghanistan there's little that could be more consequential than the kind of like way decisions are made and how we conduct military operations and what we think the role of the army is and um, how we make decisions that affect directly and indirectly millions upon millions of lives so i i, I think that you know there could there couldn't be more of a, a a sort of like more important topic to to be reading about and educating oneself about and um certainly this is a book that just has come out of is the fruit of just like a lot of hard work and a lot of speaking to people and a lot of just yeah just like turning up and doing interviews and 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 then fact checking them we get into all that i won't go on any longer except say if you enjoy the podcast and you want to support it you can go to the coffee page and drop me a few beans to help me keep the lights on that helps with like hosting costs and uh with you know maintaining the website and just all the work that goes into it i really appreciate those of you who've done so um quite a few listeners have um chipped in just like three quid or something like that really really helped there's no sort of tears there's no like secret behind the scenes episodes or anything like that everything that i produce is just available to everyone for free and i think that's how i want to keep it because i want it to be accessible to anyone regardless of how much they can afford but if you want to um uh, chuck a few quid into the old um digital guitar case then it just makes a huge difference like genuinely every every time someone does it i'm like oh thank goodness <laughs> not not wanting to make myself sound too desperate don't worry um but um it has kept the will f- from the door and it's really hugely appreciated um i hope that you enjoyed today's episode i'm just not gonna i'm just gonna get out of the way this um is me chatting to simon Aikham and uh about his book the changing of the guard enjoy What's the first? I just wonder if you got one of your early, earliest memories uh, of sort of realizing that stories and and the words we use are were important. Like one of the early, can you you know can you remember yeah. like one of the, 
earliest stories you were told or one of the earliest times you realised storytelling was important? I mean, it's interesting because I, I kept a diary from when I was pretty young. So I suppose this began, it began first, and I've written about this. I mean, I, I did a piece for the Paris Review about it. So, so this is all in the public domain. But I, I, I first kept a diary when I was six, I think it was a school project. And, you know, my, my spelling was pretty limited then. You can see like bits of it are written in my mum's handwriting and stuff. It was clearly a sort of assisted project. But I, I then kept a diary pretty solidly from when I was about 11 to when I was about 17. I've reread it. It's obviously like an unbearable teenage read. Um, and then after as an adult. So there was clearly this kind of huge writing compulsion. Um, and I, I just read a lot as a as a young person. So my parents read to me when I was a child. And then, again, I've kind of, I've written about this before, actually, the stuff that I read when I was a teenager and adolescent. So I didn't read, you know, canonical English literature. I wasn't someone who was reading Jane Austen and the Brontes and stuff as a, um, as a child. Although I did later study English at university. But I, I read, you know... I read like Frederick Forsyth and Tom Clancy and Biggles and a lot of stuff that was kind of very boisy um, and, and maybe kind of related in some ways to what I ended up writing about with the military. And I, I remember some years ago, I went back in my mid-twenties and reread a lot of that stuff and I found it a really terribly disappointing experience because a lot of those books were kind of, were quite bad, you know. Um, but I did, I was really like highly engaged by by reading and by and by writing, I had this sort of huge compulsion to write. And I, you know, I set up a newspaper at school and, and all that kind of thing. So I think it's something that, that is pretty inlaid in me, you know, as, as you know, that, that goes back a long way. But it's, um, yeah, it's maybe hard to draw out like particular things. And, and I remember, I mean, in terms of what I wrote this book about, I remember when I was at university, I was doing an internship in, in Africa and I read... I read Dispatches by Michael Hare. So for those who aren't... Oh, my God, it's such a good book. What an incredible book. Unless you're going to say it's dreadful, in which case you're welcome to your view as well. I mean, absolutely incredible book. And I remember, you know, for those who aren't familiar with it, so Hare covered the Vietnam War for Esquire. I mean, but but in, you know, he wasn't... He was like a college student or something. Like, he kind of begged a press visa. He got out to Vietnam. He wrote a series of quite sort of trippy pieces. I think had a huge nervous breakdown and then like seven years later published this incredible book, which is which is the source material for every Vietnam War trope that you'll ever see in a movie or anything like that, from the kind of mad colonel to you know the helicopters and all that sort of thing. But but it's an incredible piece of, of non-fiction writing. And that you know, that really stuck with me. So yeah, it goes it goes back a long way, I suppose. I, I yeah, I mean dispatches like is so rewarding on the, on the line i just feel like the density of the writing the the reward line by line is just it's one of those things that shows that there's nothing let there's not necessarily anyway anything less creative about non-fiction than fiction because the kind of the density of the prose and the uh and the quite you know like e- e- elaborate like you say almost kind of psychedelic it's quite um, hallucinogenic you know, yeah. Um, yeah yeah is, is incredible. I, I remember the the description of um, helicopters falling out of the air like poisoned birds. I mean, I think I think there is with dispatches, you know, that debate that takes place about a lot of really seminal, ostensible nonfiction from an earlier era of like quite how nonfictiony it was. You know, were there bits that were. Um, that were polished or, or fictionalized and, you know, that that is apparent with Kapuczynski, the way it's talked about now, or the way that people talk about Lillian Russ's New York essays in the 1950s, you know, so that, so that in some ways is a is a slightly different, and there's a whole piece about that 
you know, in terms of how you combine narrative with facts, which I, you know, I really tried to do in my book. I suppose, you know, Lauren Binet or someone like that with HHHH is the guy who's really engaged with that recently. But yeah, those were, those were incredible things. And I, I also think what's sort of interesting for me, though, is that I had a period where, like, I very much wanted to be a journalist. So I, I edited a student newspaper when I was at university. I had um, a scholarship for the United States to, to go to journalism school, which is amazing. I worked in newspapers and for wire services. But I then kind of had um, a sort of move away from that as well. So it was kind of like I wanted to, to write in a more writerly way. I wrote three unpublished novels in my 20s, um, you know, which was a pretty savage and, and, and difficult apprenticeship in some ways, but I, I certainly learned things from that. And I would be interested in going back in that fiction direction in future. But I then, I suppose I had this exposure because I was in the US to this American, uh, call it literary nonfiction, call it magazine writing, call it what you will, tradition, which encompasses someone like hair, but also, you know, I suppose if you're in its, in its traditional way, going back to the 50, you know, the 60s and 70s, the new journalism, this idea that you would combine narrative tropes that were lifted from fiction, so point of view, characterization, dialogue, things like that, but with a, a real attempt to, to tell something that was completely true. And I found that very powerful. And I, I kind of cut my teeth writing magazine pieces alongside my more conventional journalism, maybe five or six years ago, really went in that direction almost exclusively. So I had a, I had a space with my my association with like literature, you know, read voraciously as a child, but you know, quite, you know, trashy stuff. I did English at Oxford, so I had a sort of, you know, very, you know, I had to do old English and all that kind of thing. Went off in a, a sort of newsy direction and then came back with this American twist to it, spent ages failing to write fiction, wrote this, you know, hefty book on the military. And now, you know, I'm working, I'm developing another nonfiction project, but I'm also interested in fiction. And I think it, you know, it behooves you to be sort of, to be open in your creative aspirations and, and, in, and in terms of where you want to go and, and, and you, know, to, you know, to have a kind of open mindset that is open to growth in all those different directions. And I, I, would, I would think, and, you know, if you, if you disagree, then I'd love to hear your opinion on this, but the, when we're talking about the, the military, as with so many um, national institutions, the, the, the expectations that a lot of people at all different levels um, going into those institutions have are often drawn and built and created in part from the fiction, yeah, from, from, from the boys' from, adventures, from, culture, from Biggles. Right? Yeah, from popular culture. Yeah, exactly. yeah. But I, I'm, I'm, of course, I'm not suggesting that everyone who goes into the army is purely basing their idea on Biggles, but, the, but, but certainly adventures and thrillers and so, I mean, you know, hugely fiction. so yeah and i think i mean it's worth maybe briefly holding the candle for biggles here because when i went back and reread all this stuff actually like biggles is quite unsparing like everyone dies you know there's no you know there's like a high body count of like you know sympathetic characters in biggles it doesn't you know, it doesn't gloss that aspect of it but you know to, to explain the military collection in some ways so when i was 18 after i left school i did um I joined the army on a program that was called variously a short service limited commission or a gap year commission. And it's interesting, again, you know, I'm, I'm twice the age now that I was when I did that. And so I probably have a bit more perspective on, on why I did it. And I think there were a number of elements. So I had, and I write about this in the book, I'd, I'd done cadets at, at school um, where, where we had this kind of very inspirational teacher who, who led that. And a lot of people, you know, I grew up in Cambridge, it's not an obvious recruiting ground for the military, but a lot of people went that way and but I think it was also 
in retrospect, it was slightly my teenage rebellion. So my, I'd grown up in an academic family. My parents were quite left wing, not not enormously so, but you know, they were from that milieu. And I suppose the thing that I could do to kick against that was to cut my hair and join the army. And I wouldn't have recognised that at the time, I think. But it, you know, I think that probably was an element. And but also it was like, you know, this was a it was an impressive programme that the army did. I think it was quite far sighted, and it took people who weren't necessarily going to go back to the military. But you, you know, you had to be. You had to do very well on all their assessment centres and things to get taken in. And you went and did a sort of comically brief course at Sandhurst for like less than a month. And then they put you in the field army. So you weren't allowed to go on operations because you, you had minimal training. But the idea was that you did the sort of stint and they tried to show you a good time. And that you would then, some of them would come back after university and some wouldn't. But the people who didn't would then... Um, have a sort of bit of an understanding of the military and stuff like that. So, you know, historically, this is what Rory Stewart did and, and Mark Urban and Andrew Mitchell and, and people like that. So that kind of took me, you know, gave me this exposure. And the, the way the book came about was, I mean, that was in 2003-04, so before I went to university. And it was just after the invasion of Iraq. So I was in a tank regiment in Germany. The tanks had literally just come back. It was still yellow. And I had this sort of brief snapshot, you know, nine, nine months really. Uh, and I left and I, I went to university. But and then I became a journalist. So I, I had this, I spent a year in the Middle East. I went, I had this scholarship for states. I worked at the New York Times in New York. And I worked for, for Reuters and for The Economist as a freelancer in Africa. So I was away. I was abroad for five years, really. And I came back in the end of 2012. And I realized this was basically a decade since I'd seen the army before. And I had this idea, you know, an enormous amount had happened. The, the, the body of the Iraq war had happened at that time. Uh, the Afghan campaign had and a huge amount had changed and I realised that I had this kind of snapshot of what had been and I, I, I you know and I could get a snapshot of how it was then and I could write this book that was about how the army had changed but I could also write a book that was really about Britain you know that I, I really wanted from the get-go to kind of jump that genre fence and, and kind of to invert and to play with you know all these Boise tropes and, and things like that, that I had grown up and in and which I felt in some ways had if not misled, at least presented a somewhat rose-tinted notion of what these things and, and what conflict was like. And so I, in 2014, as the British campaign in southern Afghanistan was closing, I got out there on, a, on an assignment for The Economist and spent you know, a relatively brief period of time there, but it was very interesting. And I got a book deal and, and wrote this book. So it was always kind of, I felt it was sort of fecund. There was something you could invert and play with, you know, because there were these, it was such a trope of how these, how we write about soldiers and these ideas of heroism and, and all of that. And, and actually by coming in and just writing something that was quite trenchant and quite raw, you could make something that was both very novel to a, a sort of un, uh, acclimatized reader, but also would actually really register with people who have these experiences. I suppose that, you know, that's, we, we try, I'm sure we would say with you, you try and put a, a retrospective teleology on these things that, that doesn't quite match how it works out at the time. But yeah, that's, that's really how it, how it came to be. That's what that's what I was that's what I was going to ask actually is I just wonder and maybe it's you know there's not a right and wrong way to this you know I'm not trying to because sometimes we the opposite is getting lost in that self mythologizing mm. where they're like you know we talk about being compelled to write a book and actually you know we are always looking around going how am I going to pay the mortgage yeah, you know yeah. there's all you know like I I think we can get a little bit self mythologizing about it but I'm wondering when was there a point did you initially think oh there's an article in this and then as you kind of thought about it you thought no I want to make this into a book did you sit down and go there's a book I'm going to go out and research it or I wonder if there was a point where you went oh 
God, this is going to be a book, isn't it? Like this is, yeah. I can't deal with this in a, a smaller format. I mean, it's a great, it's a great question. Um, I mean, it was really tied up with what I was doing more widely professionally at that time. So in, in 2010, I'd gone, um, so I'd been to journalism school in the States and um, I'd done some internships in Turkey and in Berlin. And, and then I was offered this, this what's called a stringage job in Sierra Leone in West Africa. So it's kind of, you know, in a sense, it's the last bit of sort of, you know, romantic Graham Greene journalism that you can do as a young person. So you go and you're effectively, you're effectively a contractor for, I would work for Reuters. So the deal was that you couldn't work for their immediate competition. So you couldn't work for um, Associated Press or Agence France Press or Bloomberg. But you could for other people. So I wrote, I wrote a lot for The Economist um, and I also wrote magazines. And I lived there for two years. Um, and, and, you know, you, have a, you get paid a certain amount each month um, and, and then you get paid by what you write and you have an expense account. And so, you know, you don't make any appreciable amount of money, but you kind of cover, cover your costs. And it's a, you know, it is a pretty good, I think it's a very good apprenticeship as reported in some ways, because it's just quite tough, really. And you're, you know, I see young people in newsrooms now, you know, if you're in your early to mid-20s out of university, and, and, you know, you can get doing, you can be doing stuff that's quite heavily supervised, that's not, you know, you don't have a huge amount of responsibility. And, you know, in that period when I was there, like, I saw my bosses who were in Senegal twice in two years, right? So it was almost, you know, almost completely on your own. And, you know, you, you, do, you do sink or swim a little bit. Although actually most people, if you, if you make the effort of getting on the plane, do find that they swim. Um, and I was pretty successful doing that, you know, and I, I was, so I was, you know, I, I was based in Sierra Leone, but I went, I traveled quite a lot. I went to uh Guinea, Mali, Senegal, Cote d'Ivoire. I went to Mali after the coup, that sort of thing, and um, Gambia. Um, and and I was offered two jobs on the back of that. I was offered the uh, the Kinshasa correspondent job for Reuters, um, and I was which is in the Congo. And I was offered a sort of roaming gig for for the Economist in uh, in West Africa. And um, after some consideration, I turned them both down. And I, I really. I kind of come to the conclusion that I was I was sort of in flight from my life and in flight from normality and things like that. And I'd kind of seen, as I think a lot of people do in those environments, like, you know, what spending another 15 years there would do to you and who you would end up being there. And I kind of made a pretty tricky decision. Like, I'm going to come home and I'm going to try and sort of, you know, sort myself out in various ways and, and things like that. And, but that then meant that I had this kind of year zero situation where I arrived in London. I stayed with a friend of my mum's for six months. I'd never lived there as an adult. I grew up in Cambridge. I spent more time in New York than I spent in London. Um, and, I, and I had come off this career track that I was on a pretty high trajectory on, you know. And it was like, well, what do you want to do? I'd, I'd, I'd written by that point, like, three unpublished novels. You know, I'd had an agent who had, you know, with varying degrees of enthusiasm, kind of looked at these things, but they hadn't sold. But I, I had this burning, and I, I was building a track doing magazine pieces. It was like, well, what am I going to do? You know, I didn't... I didn't. Re- I didn't really want to go abroad again. You know, that was the the thing. And and I, I think I, I had this idea. Yeah, I think it was initially a magazine piece idea. And I was like, hang on, hang on, this could be a book. And but it took. It was interesting. It took a long time. You know, and it was. Um, I mean, we can get to the whole saga of the, the journey publication in a bit. But it's funny. I was talking to um, a, a younger journalist friend who's actually. You know, she's working in the Congo at the moment. We had a drink yesterday. Yeah, you know, she's maybe five years younger than me. And, it is funny as you say when you look back because like this book has come out this year. It's had it's had wall to wall coverage. There's been a lot of discussion about it. You know, it's had. I've been kind of you know it, it's hugely raised my profile and all of that, and that's obviously very gratifying. But you know, it was a long process, and I remember you know I came back to London when I was 27, and you know I spent with like kind of years really where I was just sort of 
hustling my way in London, you know, doing magazine pieces, doing other bits of work for money, um, like kind of make, you know, like making my way. I worked for Newsweek for a year that, um, and again, it's funny how these things sort of work because I've been developing this book idea. I got myself to Afghanistan. I then got hired kind of out of the blue by this new edition of Newsweek um, that was set up uh, with, you know, sort of brief flowering. And I had this amazing gig just to write long pieces under contract. And then the Americans, after about a year, the Americans pulled the funding. We all got fired. And it, I think, again, you know, these towing forks in the road are interesting because, like, if that had carried on, I wouldn't have written this book. I, don't think. I just didn't have time. But I remember, again, like, you know, we, all, we literally all got fired overnight. And this was in, like, 2015. I had this sort of semi-complete book proposal, which I've been working on with this agent who, you know, I'd been working with by that point for a long time. But it wasn't, you know, I knew I'd known her son at university. I'd never kind of had a proper professional like interaction with that and um in the end a colleague introduced me to another agent and like within you know five weeks literally he ginned up a five publisher book deal book auction and everything like that so i was in that it was very exciting but i do remember thinking at the time like you know i'd spent years trying to write novels right and none of it had worked and suddenly yeah i was in this this you know big publishing auction and everything and it was sort of thrilling but i was also kind of like i made me a little bit glad that this has happened now and not when i was 24 i was 20 i think i was, I was quite glad i got a book before i was 30 i think but i was also quite glad that i was quite like realist about it i think um but yeah it, it is it's just funny you know i mean I, I think it's wrong to talk about you know my like years of struggle or whatever like you know but it was it, it it took a long time and the mix of like stuff i was intending and hoping to do and stuff that happened because other stuff happened and i was reacting to that is it's just interesting to try and unpick that. I'm sure it's the same for any writer. Yeah, I mean, like, a novel is a lot of work. Th- three novels that you you write, you work up, you submit, yeah. and no one wants them. Yeah. I mean, you've got to be a little bit bullheaded to go, you know what? I mean, I'll do a, I'll just uh, pitch a fourth book. Maybe <laughs> this fourth one is going to be the charm. And then, of course, it was... But like, I think there's there's got to be a certain amount of kind of like bloody mindedness, and I think if nothing else, it's not necessarily about, um, you know, your amazing struggle so much as everyone else going, oh, that's a bit of a relief, you know, to know that that can happen and it's not necessarily. I do think it's it's actually, I don't think that's that unusual. You know, we had, um, I think we have we on on my writing podcast, which I you know called Always Take Notes, small plug there, but we um we had William Boyd on, I think. you know, a few weeks ago, a very nice man. And he was like, yeah, I wrote three novels before the first one was published. And, you know, I have friends who are novelists now and stuff. So there definitely was a kind of bullheadedness. I think there was also a sense, I didn't really have any idea about the, the kind of mechanics of how you could make a living on this stuff when I was at university. I think I sort of thought like, right, I'm going to have this like big early 20s fiction hit and it's going to, you know, kind of similar to your experience of this in some ways, you know, I'm going to be very famous and it's all going to be nice and, and, you know, the money will sort of sort itself out and, and things like that. And no one kind of sat me down and was like, right, this is actually, you know, how much money people pay for books and, you know, how it's distributed and, and all of that kind of thing. So I think that there's kind of a, yeah, just, there was, you know, a sort of naivete in, in some ways. But I, I was fascinated listening. We were speaking off air about, you know, before coming on, I listened to that very powerful episode you did with this guy who was writing about whether, whether he should step back or, or quit his writing. And, um, you know, I think it's, I think your point that, like, there are, there are structural things that are always in play, right? Like it depends where you come from. And certainly, you know, like I went to private school and I had some 
backing from my parents and stuff like you know no, no, one should not diminish those things at all but i do think particularly particularly in, in the that you know not so much getting the book because i you know i had this thing where like the book was like this huge you know everyone wanted it and it was really like you know there were all these publishers fighting for it and then i wrote the thing and then it became this like toxic thing that no one would touch you know so it had this weird kind of trajectory with that but a lot of it was just not about quitting you know about like doing and you know, i have to you know i had a coach i worked with i had yeah and I, I do think with any thing like this it's not so much that i mean there's a guy called i'm you know a guy called david grant i think you know, not not david grant the new york writer so a book a guy who wrote a book called getting things done which is a productivity book and i think like a lot of people who who work for themselves i'm kind of obsessed with, with these things but his point is like if you're doing a big project, the book is a big project, you, know, you don't in any definable way, like, write it. You just do a series of discrete and smaller steps, and eventually the thing is in front of you. you know? I think that's particularly true with nonfiction, where there's a lot of reporting and there's it, a very heavy edit process and stuff. I think writing a novel is a bit different. But there is something about, like, you know, particularly when things were really difficult, and we kind of, you know, when I was being pursued by my previous publisher for money and threatened by lawyers and everything like that like or when you're in that sort of trench situation you just have to take you have to know the direction you're going in and you have to know what the next email you're going to send is right and that is really all you have to know and so i, I do think now looking back on the whole thing and i think you know in terms of this interest i have in picking up trying to write fiction again and stuff it's a bit like well you know if you just keep plugging away and you know i, th I think there's also something about something that i kind of learned in my 20s about how you kind of comport yourself as a as a creative person as an artist which i definitely had this idea it was about you know like lone brilliance you know that you're the kind of clever young man sitting in your room whatever and actually i think what i think is tremendously if you're doing anything creative you, you have to it's it's about creative generosity and being surrounded by people and asking for help and feeling you're in a, in a community of people doing similar work so you know i think those things are key but you know yeah not not quitting you know i'm i'm an advocate of that <laughs> Um, Sam, can I take you because I, like I feel like just to make sure everyone's on the on the bus, we've kind of like foreshadowed a lot, a lot of stuff, and I wonder if we could um, dive into, yeah, sure. um, you know, like the you know what happened with the uh, the the changing of the guard, like what work you did on it, um, and maybe maybe before like anything else, just like a kind of quick pricey for like listeners about what the book is about, and then we can kind of go into what you did, and then I know you've talked about this before, but then we can get talk about kind of like how the that battle, yeah, yeah, sort yeah. of shook out yeah yeah, yeah. So, so, the, so the book is called the changing of the guard it was published this year but i mean it's about the evolution of the british army since 2001 um and so you know that's the the, the subtitle is the british army since 9 11 but the idea that i had was i'd have this glimpse of the army when i was 18 that i was going to go back uh 10 years later and i glimpsed there and i'd sort of fill out what happened before and i'd write this book about how the army changed but that it was going to be a um uh, a book was really about Britain through the lens of the army. And um, I also wanted it to fit in this kind of narrative nonfiction tradition that I've been, I've been marinating in. And I, I remember vividly that when I was at the start, I asked a lot of people for advice, a lot of people were very gracious. But Tom Ricks, who's an American you know, nonfiction writer, has written various books about the US military, it was like, there is a one-to-one -one ratio with a nonfiction book between the amount of work you put in and how good it is. And I was like, okay. And then I, I thought that's like... Um, I think it's kind of interesting point actually, and I like so I I mean I interviewed two hundred and sixty people over three years for this book. I went to Afghanistan, and, and and an interesting kind of structural point with the book is I I didn't try and write this like wholesale chronology because I felt that there are various books about these campaigns that are like 
it was like 20 years. It's like, then there was this tour and this tour and this unit rotated and all that. And I felt that you ended up a huge sort of cross for your back. So what I, my book instead is, is bracketed by two br- brief bits of first person experience. So about kind of this experience I had doing cadets at school and, and briefly joining the army as a team. Um, and the end of the book is about me going back and talking to that teacher, a very powerful experience. But then there's like, it's like five kind of mini narratives, each of which is discrete, but involves a, a, se- a kind of separate interconnected cast of characters. The first is about a tank regiment, the one I was in, in the run up to and during the invasion of Iraq. The second is about a, a pretty bloody and difficult operation a year later in Iraq, but in parallel to the, the restructuring of the army, it was hugely vexed at the time. The third is about the, the changing way that soldiers told their stories. So it's particularly about the advent of um, stuff driven by new technology like YouTube films, but also about how things like the medal system reinforce behavior. The fourth is about the, the denouement in Iraq, so it had the kind of end game for the Brits when it all went south. And the fifth is about accountability. And essentially it's called the glut and the void, and it's about the glut and void of accountability. And it's how there was you know, a huge amount of, of these sort of novel probes of junior people at a real absence at the top. And so it, it, I got the deal in 2015. It basically took three years to write, but I wasn't doing it full time. So I'd, I'd been working for Newsweek before then. It, Newsweek had stopped, we'd all got fired. Um, I had this book deal. I had, a, I mean, I, you know, I had a forty-five thousand pound advance. So, like that, you know, I, um, I, you know, I think it's important to talk about money in this sort of context. So it was bidded for five ways. Top offer was fifty-two k, but I turned that down because I kind of that was from Harper Collins, who, who published a lot of sort of quite traditional military history and stuff, and I wanted a more kind of literary thing. I went with um, a young editor at Heinemann who I really liked, and I generally had a very good relationship with. So I took the second offer, but you know, as I'm sure a lot of listeners know, like forty-five k doesn't mean. 45k right it's like 15% that goes to your agent you only get a third of it up front all that kind of thing so it's clear I was gonna to have to do other stuff so I did I basically just like hustled magazine work alongside and in parallel was basically trying to kind of like get into the American market for that because it's a lot better paid so you know I remember I I dust stuff at Newsweek I had a bit of some stuff from before but like I did long reads for the Guardian I wrote for British GQ on the back of that I got into writing for Business Week in the US with outside so I was kind of doing that and I did a bit of you know editorial work for NGOs and stuff but I was you know it was pretty hand to mouth and um, I spent three years doing that and uh, you know I talked to all these people and and what I when it became kind of difficult you know doing the interviews was sort of fine like I was I was totally honest to people. I was writing a book and everything like that. But I think probably because of my background and you know I had some military experience and stuff, I was people were often very open to talking to me. Um, but what you have to do in a, in a piece of nonfiction like this is like you have to cross check it all. You know, you have to. You're told these these kind of multiple interconnecting accounts of events, and I wanted to write narrative, and I was also determined, you know, that everything was going to be nailed down. And and you kind of realise this in the, when you you read history. You know, particularly, if you, I mean, I always think about it, it's like, if you read a book about World War II and it says, like, the sweat was dripping down someone's forehead, it's like, you just know they're making stuff up by that point. Because it's like, you know, unless, what is your source for that? Like, how, you know, where does that come from? And my view that the tradition I've been raised in as a reporter, particularly in the US, was like, everything is going to be nailed down. And so I then had to, and I, I knew how to do that with a magazine piece, right? I knew, you know, you talk to people and you go back and you cross-check and you do all of that. And you, you know, it's often a pretty vexed process, but the result is that everything is, is sort of nailed down and all of that. The problem was, this was like 35 times as long as a magazine piece, you know? So I, I, I spent, I remember, a month trying to like fact-check. I had a first draft, basically. It was like trying to boil this down to, to something that was nailed down and everything. And, the first draw, the first scene of the book, which takes place on a, a training exercise in Canada in 2002, with this this kind of veteran 
uh, non-commissioned officer dressed up as a Nazi. Um, and it's a pretty extraordinary scene, but but you know, um, I I fact check that like I did a magazine piece. You know, writing, and it's, you know, you're writing to like 15 people about something that happened 15 years ago, saying how does this happen? And it took a month to check a single scene. I was like, I, can't, I was behind deadline of everything. How do I do this? So I kind of moved to saying, okay, look, I'm going to take a section of like first draft text about an episode, you know, this involves this person, send it to them and say, look, is this an accurate recollection of your experience? Can you mark this up? Everything like that. Which was more time efficient, but did mean that you were sending material that was rougher to people. And, you know, it, it, the whole, it's interesting because I'm doing this in a much smaller way than a magazine piece at the moment. And it's a fascinating, but it's often quite a frustrating process. Like with the thing I'm doing today, like I've made great efforts to write like really focused questions to people. And, you know, this guy is like freaking out and being like, ah, you know, this is, full of mistakes or whatever and the point you're kind of saying is like the whole reason that we're having this discussion now is to get it accurate but basically i then you know i, I pushed on doing this for the whole book and because you know undoubtedly like, this created a sort of bow wave of alarm in the army it's like who is this like young ruffian who's sort of you know writing to people saying you this was a disaster and everything and what's your response and you know undoubtedly did that but i kind of i think my naivete in some ways was that I assumed that, that my publisher, which was PRH, would behave like a news organization, right? Like, this is just kind of how journalism works. And, you know, it was all kind of going fine. Um, but then what, what created the... Uh, and, and I was knackered. Like, I've been working on this for three years. Like, it was... It was comp- can, I, can I ask you yeah. something about that? Just a second. I just wanted to say... And now, this might seem like a very obvious question yeah. to you, but I want to ask it anyway. Yeah. Why was it Im- so important to you to get all that stuff right because i i would just to, to put not too fine a point on it i've definitely read books where that level of fidelity that what can i say this neutrally was not w- w- the, the author could not be accused of being overly concerned yeah. with um moving away from purely poetic truth yeah why was that so important to you because it's clear to me that to a large proportion of your readers um, they wouldn't have checked at that and it wouldn't have, you know, they wouldn't be able to tell yeah. the difference between something that'd be rigorously fact-checked and something that was based on best recollections and you just went with that. Why was that important? I think it's interesting. It's partly it's just the tradition that I've been raised. Like if you're writing a big magazine piece for thing in America, like this is what you're expected to do. I think it's also that I knew it was going to be a controversial book, right? And I knew that like if... And I think ultimately a lot of this is just done to make it like legally sound. It's like, you know, if you're if you're raising an allegation against someone, you know, you have to offer them the opportunity to respond. And these people are all still alive. And, it, you know, that's the fair thing to do. I think also there is certainly a thing about writing about the military, which is a trope that I've noticed, that like if you get like a trivial thing wrong, it will immediately get seized upon as like by a certain readership. Be like, well, what, you know, I don't know if we can swear on this, but the classic like what the fuck does he know thing. So the classic can swear you know, by absolutely. So the classic thing is like you know oh you got the caliber of a rifle wrong like I was I was know, I was gonna you know, I was gonna say they're like going oh you got the um the, this is a broomhandle Mauser you've said it's like seven point yeah, six like, three millimeter what, but those ones are actually nine millimeter like, and then the after point is like what the fuck do you know you know is always the, yeah. the kind of so so I think there is a point with that but I also felt like. You know, and there's possibly, you know, I did it, you know, am I slightly obsessed about the stuff? Possibly, and things like that. But I mean, for example, there's, there's a bit in that you know, in that opening scene of the book where I write about the colour of the paint on the inside of this guy's tank turret, 
and I say that it is like you can it, it is dark brown with the red oxide primer coming through in places where it's been worn away and I know that because I wrote to him and I said what did the inside color of your tank turret look like and I think you know that the, the, the point is quite interesting with doing this is usually like another reason you do it is that the world delivers material that is better than you could ever have made up you know it's like you know that there's a and I, but I, I do think it's interesting you know, if I'm moving to trying to write fiction and future as for that but I, I also felt it was like if you're writing in narr you know, narrative and and everything like that and it had to be I was thinking there's something about it's about fairness you know like this is a book is very critical of the military in many ways but I did you know there's 90 odd pages of footnotes at the back with like people saying well this is my interpretation of this and I don't agree with that and and all of that so but I, but I think there's a thing about you know, I was feeling my way through this. I knew, you know, how you could do it for a magazine piece. And and it's also, a lot of these things are a function. You can't do that with a book about World War II because everyone's dead, right? Like, it's beyond human recollection. It's beyond human memory. And But also, at the same time, like, the kind of things that people can write about Vietnam now, where they go and, like, you know, get a lot of perspective from the Americans, but then also have all the perspective from the people they were fighting, you know, from the... If that big Ken Burns Vietnam documentary or something, which is so powerful... Um, you know, I didn't have that. Like I, you know, I'd been to Afghanistan kind of briefly for the book. I didn't go to Iraq. I did speak to some Iraqis, but like it is a, a fault of the book is that it is very much through through kind of Western eyes. And I think, you know, as time passes, people could do that. But yeah, I, th there is a slight irony. I think uh, you know, my editor said this that like all this effort that you spent in trying to like get this all right was part of the reason that there was such a um, shit show about it. But there's also, I, yes. I, I'll, I'll stop from, but I think there's also something that I did definitely learn with this, which is about, you know, how you carry yourself as a reporter. And, and I think I'm better at this now that, you know, you can often, not always, but get to a place with people where you're like, look, we're talking about something here that's really difficult, and important for you. This may be like literally the worst day of your life. And we're going to be, you know, I'm not going to be hiding in the details, but I am going to be fair. And I am going to make big efforts to try and get your side and to play this with a straight bat. And people respect that, I think. Now, it's interesting, again, just this thing today I've been having this minor altercation about completely unrelated matter has made me think, like, you know, I've brought to bear all of the, like, emotional intelligence that I learned doing the change of the guard, and, and this guy is still, you know, blowing a gasket. But, you know, I don't, um, I don't quite know. Anyway, that's, that's yeah. It's, it's funny what people get funny about, and it's not always the things you expect. Yeah. Sometimes I've talked about someone and... I've sent them the piece and I've thought, oh God, I feel like I've been a bit of a dick. And um, and they've been totally fine and they've taken it as it was meant. And then something else that I thought I was being, you know, a bit of a suck up to the person, they've really taken a guinea and said, no, 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 no. And really seems to be offended. And I, I don't always know. And sometimes I just get it, you know, and sometimes I do get it wrong. And I'm actually very glad when people point that out, but you've just not quite... It's difficult. Sometimes people don't really realise what they've told you until they see it in text and they yeah, see yeah. it back at them. They read it yeah. back and then they go, oh, God, what have I... So can we just move on a bit to what yeah. um, then sort of started to happen? You said this bow wave was kind of moving. Yeah, yeah. So there was sort this, of... There like was certain, very... Certain, this fact-checking. Certainly a bow wave. But, but what, what specifically happened was I'd had a, um, I'd had a visiting fellowship at an organisation at Oxford called the Changing Character of War programme, which is a sort of academic thing there. And I was supervised by an academic there who's a guy who, you know, sort of smart and well-read guy, but did have very close relations with the military. And when it became clear that this book 
um, was critical of the army and I think, you know, was causing upset. He just broke off comms with me, you know, like he wouldn't answer emails and like that. And, and he was a pretty disorganized guy. So it was quite hard to tell whether this was, you know, him just being flaky or like he was he was blowing me off. But I am um, I'd forced him. I'd paid a couple of grand in fees to attend and I, I forced a meeting with him by saying, look, you know, you need to step up here. And he'd had a kind of relatively advanced version of the manuscript. And we had a pretty like surreal meeting in Pembroke College in the summer of 2018. Like he was like, you know, I think you should anonymize senior commanders. And I was like, I don't think that's how this works. And you, need, you should write more about sports in the army. And I was like, this is a bit weird. And I remember the meeting kind of concluded with me going like, how do you think the Afghan campaign went? And he was like, you know, to try and um, draw a conclusion on the Afghan campaign now would be like to judge the Second World War after the evacuation of Dunkirk. And, you know, the evacuation of Dunkirk took place 10 months after the opening of World War II. And we were speaking at that point 17 years after 9-11. I was like, I don't think this is credible. And I think, you know, we're, we're speaking four years later now and the, um, or three years later now, you know, the, the Western-backed regime in Afghanistan has just precipitously collapsed. You know? So I think it's, it's pretty clear how that has gone. But essentially I was like, okay, look, I've drawn a certain amount from my interaction with this guy, but I'm not going to get more. I'm just going to leave this. And then in, you know, two years, a year later or something, maybe, no, sorry, six months later, I was doing the kind of final bits of fact checking. It was going through its like legal, the book, legal assessment and stuff. And um, I had to go to a source. Uh, I, I, I had this incident described to me that was about um, a guy calling in ground, a ground attack aircraft in Afghanistan in 2006. And I'd had this told by the guy on the ground, um, and I, I, he was critical of the pilot, and I hadn't got the pilot's perspective, and I didn't know, I didn't have a contact for her. I was told to get her. Uh, getting in touch with her so the the pilot uh, my source gave me a defense i wrote to her i said look this is what i'm saying about you, you know, would you like to comment and she got very angry and wrote this sort of email to anyone she could find associated with the project which meant uh it included this guy oxford this guy oxford then fired off a kind of short like iphone job email to prh being like you're definitely going to get sued you're this is like a terrible book you get sued and i i then like explained to them that you do need to understand this guy you know has this very tight relationship with the military like he has he hasn't he's refused to see me and stuff like, i don't think this is a big deal but then peerage's lawyers went back to him and he then wrote a sort of full scarogram to them being like you want to get sued by this guy and this guy and this guy and he you know aiken's betrayed everyone and, you know kind of like um i mean it was all nonsense like the book has been published and no one has sued right but like it was and, and also i think it's like you know again I certainly could have done things differently, but it's like, you know, I I remember thinking when this was going on, I was like, this is quite a small bit. Like, I'd just written a magazine piece uh, for a magazine in the States, which concluded with, like, a swanky London law firm, like, firing off, like, letter after letter after letter to me. And the Americans with, like, magnificent insouciance had just ignored them all and, like, published the thing. And I was like, I think that's sort of how this works. I didn't ignore it. They took on some of the points, but they weren't frightened by it. But that was, you know, the, the reaction that happened with this could not have been further from the case. So PRH went to this kind of sacred conclave. And then they wrote to me and then they were like, we'll only publish the book if everyone in the book agrees in writing with everything you've said about them. And also that you give the book to the Ministry of Defence and let them edit it. And even then we might not. And I was just like, I remember being absolutely staggered. You know? And it's worth giving a bit of context here that there, are, there is a thing called an authorised book with the British military that in order to get access to serving people, you sign a contract that gives them pre-publication oversight on the product in exchange for 
letting you in. And I, I had kind of looked into it, and, and that, I just concluded, was a really bankrupt way to work editorially. And I didn't, I, I wrote about that in the book, but I wasn't going to do that. And this book was never like that from, from the get-go. I'd got to Afghanistan under the aegis of a, a journalistic assignment, separate thing. And so this was never the way this was agreed. And I, it was interesting, my first reaction, I remember having stuff with my mum when this broke. I just got this email, and she was like, you know, you have to fight this. And my first instinct was like, I'm going straight to the newspapers. Because it's worth saying that essentially what they were asking for was was copy approval. It's called copy approval. This idea that you know someone would have pre-sight of what you're saying about them, which is, is considered not, it's not the way to which journalism is conducted. It's, it's a it's sort of trope of like... Yeah, I, it's, I guess like if you're, it, I suppose there's certain situations where you're not doing investigative journalism, where maybe you've gone to a scientist and you're trying to describe some very diff- difficult... Yeah. Um, but not contentious sort of genetic idea and you want to send the piece back to them and go, have I, a lay person who isn't qualified in this, explain, summarised your ideas correctly? Yeah. I can see in that you're not trying to do gotcha journalism on the scientist. You just want to make sure that your summary is correct. I mean, I think, I, I think yeah, there's, there's a kind That's of... That's different, right? I think there's a sort of line between that. I mean, you know, I did a lot when I was fact-checking the book of going back to people and saying, like, is this a correct account of this? You know, you, yeah. you know provide your points. But what I wasn't letting them do was edit how I'd written about them. You know, so, yeah, so, there, exactly. so there certainly is a sort of nuance nuance between it. But, you know, what Yeah, what they were... And so I was kind of staggered by this. And my first reaction was like, I'm going straight to the newspapers. My agent was like, no, we don't do that. We do everything. So we had we submitted, like, rounds of reporting documentation, you know, all, like, these huge memos talking about everything. And what was you very... You must have felt quite hurt as well. Yeah, I felt totally... I would imagine I... that the... They would have your back, right? That yeah. they would be like, "This is our author. Yeah. How fucking dare you? Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. like this is like such an important principle of like we want to get it right, but you're not going to like bully us out of telling the truth. Like, no, exactly. You know, that's what I would imagine. That's what I. You, that's what you'd hope for. Well, that that's they'd sort be of like, what I, but I hope to. But I think there's a few things. So they basically we we submitted all this stuff. Show you know, they claimed they'd found some errors in the book which they were unable to back up. Like it was clear that they had made. What I think is so interesting about this is a number of people in this... It, it's a thing a bit about, like, the moral of the story is, like, hold your fucking nerve, right? Because, like, a number of people here made panicked decisions. So this guy at Oxford panicked and wrote, you know, this threat, which then, like, as soon as he had done that, he put himself in a profoundly professionally difficult situation because he, you know, and this guy, he's, he's been named in the press and everything, like, you know, you find out who he is. But, you know, he had tried to suppress student work. Um, and that's a pretty major taboo for an academic. And at the same time with PRH, that they, they were asking that I let the government edit this book, which they had described the acquisition as explosive and things like that. So I think, and that then, as they came to find out, actually put them in a pretty difficult position as well. So, but what I think was interesting was that there was a panic. You know, they, I think they were like, oh, he's an irresponsible young man. We've, you know, you've got to get rid of this or whatever. But they, they, they didn't realise that a... You know, they didn't know what it had taken to write this book, right? Like, ultimately, and I'd spent, you know, I dealt with a lot of institutional resistance and I was quite stubborn. And, but also that, um, you know, that they, I think there's something here about entitlement, actually, is, is what I think. And, um, you know, it's interesting with these discussions about diversity in publishing and stuff, which I think are very important and are taking place. But what it made me kind of realise was like, they thought they could do absolutely anything. You know, that they thought they could just, you know, he's, we're the publisher, they're the author, we're telling you this, we're doing all of that, you know, that kind of thing. And I was like, I don't think you can, you know, and that's not how this, and, and, and what was interesting was that my editor, who I'd had a really good relationship with, 
um, he, you know, a lot of the quality of the book is, is down to him, right? you know, and say that still now. He wasn't a journalist, certainly, but in terms of someone who knew about structuring the book and editing it, you know, he was extremely good at that. So, yeah, they, they, they made these demands. We tried to negotiate. They then, I then said, well, look, if you want me to write to all these people, like, what are the rules? You know, what if someone is trying to pull something back that they've said on tape and everything like that? You know, at that point, they, they asked to see my agent in my absence. Um, and so they, we'd had one like terrifically awkward meeting where my editor, who was like a year older than me, just had a baby, they sent him to go and see me. And he was clear all the decisions had been made above him. And they sent him to go yeah, and see. Yeah, and then they're having to, they're having, they can't like. They can't backtrack. Re- not right? represent them, yeah. but they can't like. Yeah. So, what, so what's the point of me having a conversation with this person when they're not the one who's made the decision? They're right. just. Right, exactly. And so, so, the so we have organ grinder, not the monkey. Yeah, so we had we had this very like, and I felt hugely betrayed. You know, I'd worked for them for three years and everything. But then they asked, they you know, boldly they asked to see my agent in my absence. Told them they were cancelling my contract. Told him they were asking me to pay all my advance back and to pay half their legal fees. So I had received, I think I got about seventeen grand up front. I then got another couple of grand they'd forwarded to me. But I was, you know, I was expecting to get another twenty five thousand pounds, right, when this book arrived that's fucking outrageous yeah it's totally outrageous and then they were like so we're cancelling it so you've got to pay us back all your advance and pay half our legal fees so you owe us twenty six thousand pounds and i was just like okay this is now completely you know it was obviously an attempt to and what again i think you know i I try not become emotional about this but i think like i felt in retrospect a little bit it was like soft people trying to play hardball it's like you know this is not you you want to do you like you want to do this like you know this is like you know your whole like air kissing and rework and publishing culture is like you know you've grown up in the wrong environment to be like doing this you know and i've just spent three years like prizing the inmost secrets out of a bunch of trained killers so like i'm not going to like be bowed here and so what i then did was i organized a coalition of eight press freedom organizations led by an extremely ballsy uh, european organization led by a very brave kosovo albanian woman called Flutura kasari but involving British organizations as well to write to them. So they wrote right to the like top of PRH, basically saying, you know, we think this is wrong. And I then had been talking to The Guardian and I gave them a tour of The Guardian. And I, 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 like, I knew that as soon as NGOs like, had been involved that they wouldn't chase me for money. And I knew that as soon as, you know, because I basically wanted to be like, look, you think that you've got all the power here, but actually like you're, you've broken all the rules. And so what was then fascinating I mean, there were, it, was, it was an incredibly stressful experience and it went on for about two years. But it, there was a bit of it that was quite fun because it was a game, you know, it was like a game of strategic chess. And it was a bit like going, well, look, you've broken all the rules and now you thought you were like big and aggressive, but actually now you're being like, please don't tell anyone what we did, you know, is the, is the thing. So, so the Guardian wrote about it. And then to cut a very long story short, it was then Scribe, who are an Australian publisher, um, who had kind of done this before with a book called Billion Dollar Whale that Hachette wouldn't publish, um, and they bought it out. That I got it. They, that was written about in the Economist. I got in touch with them. They wanted to do it, and then there was then a whole other battle to um, to get the copyright back for the for the book, and um, and that was. Um, you know, they basically they said like we're not going to. They dropped their legal fees requirement, but they're like we're not giving you this back unless you sign a non-disclosure agreement. I was like, I'm not doing that. You know, I think that's kind of wrong. So the deal we eventually made was that Scribe put up ten grand, which was the kind of limits of their resources as a 
independent publisher, all of that money went straight to PRH. And in theory, I then had to pay them another 10 grand six months after the book came out. But actually then what happened is the book came out, it made a lot of noise. And then I told, you know, there was another story in the press and PRH dropped that demand. So, you know, it was, you know, it was a, I mean, I don't, you know, there's something that just kind of like, I learned an enormous amount about this. You know, I am a better reporter and I'm a better professional from having been through these experiences. And I think that I'm more competent and, and, and you know, all those kind of things. Um, but I, uh, yeah, it was, it was really, really difficult. And I also, you know, it was, it was completely unnecessary as well. Like the book's been published. There's been no legal problem or anything like that. Like it's, it's fine. What can what advice have you got for have you got any advice for writers who are writing nonfiction about how they can sort of you know if because in a way the way that you approach the book and your rigor and your sort of bloody mindedness about like if I'm going to do this I want to do it right yeah um uh was the perfect setup for what ended up happening yeah. right like yeah, actually yeah, yeah. you were able to get because you couldn't have held your ground if you were thinking shit I have. I have gilded the lily a little. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course, <laughs> yeah. If like, you were thinking, yeah. "Fuck, I did," you know, like I've, uh, they have, they are going to find out a few things. There's a few skeletons in this yeah. closet, right? But actually, you were like, "I've got, I've got the tapes." Like I, yeah. I've been, I've been so, I've just been tediously rigorous on this. So, but what for writers who are going, you know, writing stuff and working on books? What because I'm, you know, some people will hear this and be very intimidated. They're like, "Well, shit!" Like I don't want to touch you know at least if i do fiction none of my characters can come out the woodwork yeah, and say yeah, yeah. you're not allowed to write that what have you got any lessons that you would yeah sort of I, I, I do hand down i do i think that one should you know the kind of lesson in this is like you should do all if you're doing like reporting you know you should always work with the assumption that at some point in the future a group of hostile and potentially legal professionals are going to comb over all your work and like you know look at it for mistakes and stuff like that, you know. And and I think that that if that is your standard, it's like you know that you 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 if that it's just that's how I think now. It's like you know when I'm doing anything, it's like well you know this all needs to stand. And also that you should be. I think it's interesting if I was doing it again, you know, because this is interesting. It's not the first time this has happened. Right, my book was the third book that the army tried to squash in the last decade. So Toby Harndon's Dead Man's Risen and Mike Martin's. So you know, there's form here. I think I would have been like okay, there's five people who want this. I need presentations from your legal teams. Like, I need to know, you know, who's doing this. I need to know, you know, there's a lot about how, because I'm writing another proposal now and I feel myself as this sort of like slightly like battle-scarred, like grizzled person yeah. doing this now. Um, but but I kind of think that's, but but I also would, I, I think in any, I suppose in any work setting, really, that I wouldn't, and I wouldn't regard that as like, oh my God, they're coming to get me. It's like, if your standard is like, if I ever need to open the books and show everyone what's under the bonnet here, you know, that, that, that it needs to be good enough for the outside world as well as for me. I think that's actually quite a, quite a kind of good policy to have. And I think there's also, it's interesting. I think if you're a young person, it's interesting. I, if I wrote this book now, it would probably be a much more like moderate kind of like, you know, measured thing but actually it's quite important that this was like an angry young person's book because these wars were fought by young people and and you know it needed someone who was like an outsider insider to, to do that you know and, and and if in 20 years time whatever there's another you know we're at the end of another 20 years of like misfiring foreign intervention then i will not be the person to write that book right it'll be you know someone who's kind of younger but i'd say if you're if you're like a young young gun or whatever you know so i was in my late 20s when i got the book deal 
you need to be aware that you need to not give people any leverage for thinking that you're like a hot-headed young person or whatever you know, conscientious be be kind of all of that but i think it's also you know the thing about publishing is it's about money right in a way that like like what they you know we we interview publishers in my show and you know they the way they talk among themselves is very different than the way they talk to writers understandably because like you know a publisher has a pnl statement at the end of the year right it's like you know they have they are responsible for that for like making or losing money in a way that you know an editor of a newspaper is not in the demo they'll have budgets but it's not it's not it's not entrepreneurial in that same way and i think that there is just an idea that you know particularly big corporate publishing maybe it's like their value system is is different you know it's like you know the is it driven by mission well maybe to an extent um but i but i think it's it is that I think that it's that basic idea of like, you know, make, you know, be professional in interactions, have the difficult conversations that you need to have up front. You know, what is very clear is that that sort of bonhomie culture of British publishing exists up to a point and it, when the, when the shit hits the fan will just like completely disappear. <laughs> yeah. You know? yeah. Um, exactly. And then you're like, where the, where the fuck are you, you now with your, yeah, with, with, like, with our lovely lunches and and the, and the, yeah, and yeah, the like, 12 o'clock prosecco you fucked off now haven't you that's done nothing yeah for exactly me. Like, <laughs> and, and, there, and there is a sort of point about this like you know there is some stuff that can't be sorted out over lunch right like that is the you know there are there are things like that so but but i think yeah it's that and i think but i do i think the thing i've kind of learned from this is, is you know if if you imagine that you know at some point someone's gonna have to look under the bonnet you know bear that in mind and and all that kind of thing it's just it's just a good professional Practice, I, I just wanted to quickly ask you because you've talked about talking to people and interviews and we kind of just brushed mm. over that and I, I just wondered yeah, if you yeah. could talk about right you you talked about setting people up and saying I'm going to be asking you about like difficult stuff and, and this kind of thing I just wondered mm. if you had any sort of techniques for talking to people I don't want to say getting them to mm. open up because that sounds like deliberately being like manipulative and, and, and then a related question is this idea that you sort of alluded to earlier, which is this idea of kind of source remorse, which might come from someone being leaned on. It might come from someone reflecting on what they said. What are your personal ethics and feelings about what happens if you speak to someone? They come out with a fucking great story. You're like, oh, my God, this is really good. This fits. This is really interesting. And then later they come back and go, do you know what? I'd rather actually you didn't write about that. How do you manage those kind of situations? I mean, it's really, it's really interesting. And, you know, this is a vexed area. And I think, you know, Janet Malcolm is a kind of classic thing on this, like, you know, are, to what extent are reporters manipulative? I think, I think the more time that I spend doing it, I, I'm kind of in favour of a sort of policy of like radical transparency, basically, and saying, you know, this is what I'm doing. Um, when, when I'm into, so when I'm interviewing someone, say, for, for that now, I'll try and send them some examples of stuff I've published before, because I think that's the best, the best way to do it. Um, I'll then, you know, if, if we're, and I didn't always do this. I mean, the basic, you know, I think it is, it also depends if who you're talking to is, is a kind of, you know, do they talk to reporters a lot or not? You know, how much do they know? But I think it's it's good practice. Not everyone does it. But if you're with someone to say, and say, look, like, I'd like to record this. The way we're speaking is um, is on the record. That means I can quote you directly. Um, if uh, you want to say something off the record, that means that it's information I can use, but I can't attribute to you, you know. And if you... Um, if you don't want me to know something, you need to not tell it to me. You know, to kind of read read a, a sort of set of Miranda rights at the beginning. But I think there is also, I mean, the 
you know, the thing about source remorse is kind of interesting. And it's like, I do think you do need to have a sort of line. You know, I think basically the point, it's worth going kind of back slightly to first principles in some ways. And, you know, that, and again, there's a difference between a lot of what people write in kind of memoir or non-fiction stuff. And that's a very like newsy thing of journalism. But if someone could, it comes back to that thing slightly of saying like, if someone could just say, take me out, like the whole like enterprise kind of falls to pieces, you know, at that, at that point, you know, like, so I think, I think what I would say is, is being as transparent as possible is actually a, a good thing. And I, I think you want to get to a position with your sources, the way it was explained to me, I think this is really good advice, is that when you're like three weeks pre-publication that you, and you, you could, and, and the editors, editors, editor, lawyers, assistant, or whatever tells you to go back to them, that you're in a position where you can go back to them. That channel of communication remains open, you know, and that even if you've been discussing very difficult stuff, that you can, um, you can say, look, like, I, that they need to think, or you hope that they are, that they perceive you as an honest broker, you know, I think that kind of, honestly, I think with, with an interview as well, a lot of it is about emotional intelligence, but also a lot of, quite a lot of about experience right you know as well but also with a big project like that what is powerful is the more you know the more people want to know you know by the end of this like i was well versed i knew often people were finding out quite a lot from talking to me as well as from talking to them it becomes a sort of reciprocal thing but i, I do think in situations like that like like boundaries are important you know you are um you're not their friend ultimately you know you are it is a different relationship and and, and what i think i you know i learned a huge amount doing that through the book i'm better at it now i'm, I'm not perfect but i had an interesting conversation yesterday just for a, a, an op-ed piece i'm writing with a couple of guys i spoke to in the book and one of these like i had some really vexed interactions with them and um uh and we spoke yesterday and actually he and i, I was like look these are you know we're speaking off the record i'm not gonna use the name of the piece and he was like look i'm very comfortable with that for all of what for all that's gone on between us you and i simon the one thing i know is i can definitely trust you and i was like you know okay fair fair cop you know like, i i I'm glad that we got to that place. But I, I do think, and um, I'm sorry, I'm waffling a bit. I do think also that reporting is a craft, actually, and that it's something that you get better doing doing a lot of. You know. you, thank you. That's really, that's really helpful. So, you, so in a way, you, it's like, it's worth, like, putting these things, um, so in, in the world of Dungeons and Dragons, you call it session zero, but it's basically sitting down with the group <laughs> and going, this is the kind of adventure I'm going to run. Like, does this meet your yeah. expectations? With the possibility that someone's going to go, I don't think I'm going to have fun because it's better actually to knock someone out early, um, realizing that you it's gonna you're going to run into problems down the line to pre-eliminate them than to do all that work and get six sessions in and they go, I thought I was going to be doing a dungeon crawl. You're doing like role playing and kind of all the stuff. That's not me. I feel I know that's yeah, a yeah. weird analogy, but I just feel like it's better to realize early that your expectations are not in alignment than to it's also yeah. it's also quite good and one thing i do now you know with, with my journalism is i make clear to people i'm like look i don't know if you're going to be in the piece right like i'm going to take like an hour of your time now and, and, and you might you might be like the center of this or you might be one line or you might be nothing yeah. you know and i think i think if you tell someone that they can understand it but if if you know it, 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 if people yeah feel that you're being duplicitous or and i also say to people that i i did all these big stories on on um covid for the economists with doctors and, and i'm doing some more stuff like that and what i say to them now is like look i know you're busy but like 
I'm going to need loads of your time when we're checking this because we need to check that like we're describing the left ventricle of the heart using the right term and you know I'm going to need you to come back to me on that and if not like it's it's difficult and and you know this is how I've done it before I just I just you know I'm not I've heard other reporters say this as well but it's like the more upfront and transparent you can be and that's not the same as being like I'm gonna this is gonna I'm gonna like blow smoke up your ass right it's not the same thing it's like I'm going to be. I mean, there's um, you know, Norman Mailer is maybe not the most like 2021 person to use as a touchstone, but the, the Mailer uh, point is is severe compassion, right? If you're writing nonfiction, you're going to be compassionate to people. You're going to try and understand their motivations and their, their situation, but you will also be severe. You know, you're not going to gild you're not going to gild the lily, but you're not going to dial something down. And that that is my thing that I'm constantly striving towards and never quite achieving. But I think that's the the, the way you should because people fundamentally understand that because it's fair you know and it's sort of it's i i I think like you know you were talking right at the beginning about effort one-to-one of effort in and the quality of the piece yeah and i think i think readers can feel when you've been sort of super unfair or when you're kind of like leaning on someone and often if you can find those objections to someone and actually give them a right to respond you often get a much more nuanced interesting piece than if you just sort of set them up to sort of like knock them down um then then i think that always ends up being a bit unsatisfying whereas if you can put the strongest case to people and give them the right to reply um it often becomes much more interesting i think well just thanks very much for um being on on the show really appreciated um chatting to you and if people want to find you online where can they find you so i'm on twitter at simon akam that's um a-k-a-m and i'm uh, my website is simonakam.com and i also uh, co-host a, a podcast about writing called always take notes which is on all the platforms and things like that thank you very much and to everyone listening have a wonderful week of writing